0: The rest of you, if you'd open your Bibles for what will be the last time, for now, to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, that is glorious, thank you, thank you for that, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and God willing, this Sunday morning, we will be closing out our study of the pastoral epistles. If you remember, about two and a half, two and three quarters years ago, we started a simultaneous study of the five books of Psalms and the, the letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus. And here we are at the end of that course, at least here. Uh, the, the schedule for the, the preaching of the, the coming weeks and months is after we finish 2 Timothy Next week, we will have a message on what is communion, why do we do it, what does it mean, what does it do. And then we'll begin an eight week series on sin and sanctification and salvation, which will be brought to you jointly between myself and Pastor Moore and Elder Jeff Zimmerman. We'll be bringing one of the messages. Won't that be exciting, Jeff? (laughs) And then then we will turn to the fifth book of the Psalms. And from there, the Lord only knows. But that'll see us easily through the summer. So 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we've been studying our way through this letter, and we're going to read these last verses, but more so than any other place in Paul's writing, I think he puts his heart on his sleeve here. These are the last inspired, recorded words of the apostle. Rotting in a jail cell, awaiting an execution, writing to his beloved Timothy, and he's been, we've seen a lot in this letter. He's been concerned about Timothy persevering, Timothy not shrinking back, Timothy being willing to suffer, Timothy opposing false teachers. And here we really see the apostle's heart. Um, we, we see his personality. We see the humanity of Paul come out. Let's read 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 22. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Dalmatia. Titus a cre, cre, Titus to Dalmatia. Sorry, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, above all the parchments. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trometheus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come to me for winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit grace be with you all. And so here, these last 11 verses, the Apostle Paul focuses his, his final thoughts to Timothy on his friends, look at his friends, we're gonna look at his foes, and then we're gonna look at some farewells. The Apostle Paul's gonna go through a, a laundry list of his associates, and he's gonna send greetings, and he's just gonna lay his heart out there, and I think there's much for us to learn in this passage, so let's dive in as the Apostle Paul first turns his mind to look at his friends. Verses 9 to 13. And, and it, this begins with an appeal for Timothy to come to him, which is now the second time. Tur- turn back to chapter 1 of Second Timothy, verse 4. He alludes to this invitation back here. 2 Timothy 1.4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And that longing leads him to, in verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. He wants Timothy to come to him soon. He sees his departure as imminent. He's already said that. Last week we saw that Paul says he's being poured out already as a drink offering. He's ready to be offered up to the Lord. And so consequently, because time is short, If Timothy's going to come, Timothy needs to do it soon. And the reason why Timothy needs to come soon, sadly, is the betrayal of Demas. Do your best to come to me soon for or because Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The picture we get is this, that Demas was here in some way ministering to Paul in Rome but because of his defection, because of his desertion, there's now no one. And so Paul is saying, please come to me soon because Demas has left. Please, please come and help fill in some of that vacuum that Demas left. Now, Demas is not a major biblical character, but he does show up two other places. And it's, it's really frightening that, that someone who is so well spoken of could, could fall like this. I want you to listen to the two other places he shows up. Colossians 4.14. At the close of the letter, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So Demas shows up in an epistle with greetings to the church. Paul includes him. He's inscripturated for all time immoral. Im, time immorial. There we go. Yikes. Okay. He, but he, there he is, his name on the page. Or again, in Philemon. Verses 23 to 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So in Philemon, Paul lists Demas as a fellow worker. as part of Paul's ministry team showing up and staying with Paul through his first imprisonment because Colossians was a prison epistle. It was written from prison. So Philemon made it through the embarrassment, made it through the trial. His faith survived the trial of sticking with Paul in his first imprisonment. And yet here, these terrible words, Demas in love with his present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And this stands, this love of Demas stands in stark contrast to what we've just seen before in verse eight. The only two times the, the verb agape, which there's three different words the Greek will use for love, and the one that that will have the strongest connotations if you want to go there. It's the only two times it appears in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are right here in verses 8 through 10. So the contrast is intentional and sharp. Verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day... And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So the lesson we need to learn here is beware the deadly lure of the love of the world. Beware the deadly lure, of the love of the world the present world, the now world, the this age world. And it becomes clear, you can't love both. Jesus made it clear, no man can serve two masters. We talked last week about how what you love will determine what you do, what you value, what you prize, what you treasure, what you must have. There are those who love the Lord's appearing. They look to his appearing, and and looking to his appearing, they're looking to the coming age. The return of Christ is what will inaugurate, will bring on the next wave of human history. And they're looking to that. And in contrast, and they're loving that. And in contrast, is Demas loving the now, the present. Keep in mind that this age, according to Galatians 1, four, is an evil age. According to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the devil is the god of this age, this world. And in Romans 12, too, we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's there's nothing good here that Demas is in love with. You can't twist this into Demas. It just had a missionary heart for the the people in Thessalonica, and he loved them. No, in in Paul's language, loving this world is clear. It means one thing. And that in the word deserted me makes it clear this is defection and it was unexpected. This is a trusted companion. He's stuck with Paul through thick and thin up to this point. He's, he's a fellow worker. And so that if, if, if Demas can succumb and be seduced by the love of this world, I, I hope that we will realize that we could be in danger of that as well. And we need to take efforts that we not fall in love with this world. The world has so much to offer, doesn't it? I mean, you can feel really at home in this world. And yet we are warned repeatedly. Let me, let me look at, list some of the warnings here. If you remember the parable of the sower, there were four types of seed and soil combinations. There was the seed that fell on the hard-packed um, path. There was the f- seed that fell on rocky soil. But there was also seed that fell on the thorny soil. And remember, that one was choked out. And in Matthew 13:22, Jesus describes it this way. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We're warned a little later in James 4.4. 4. Now listen to this in stark contrast, James 4.4. 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. According to Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are at peace with God. The gospel brings peace with God. Loving the world brings hostility with God. Loving the world is the anti-gospel. It undoes. It is the polar opposite of what the gospel promises to do. The gospel promises you can be at peace with God through faith. You can be justified and be having peace with God through faith. Loving the world, James says, makes you God's enemy, puts you in opposition to him. Or even stronger, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. You don't get much clearer than that. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And Demas, we, we don't know, we can try to reconstruct it. Perhaps Demas recognized that this time things weren't gonna go so well for the Apostle Paul. Perhaps Demas was advancing in age and thought he needed to take a rest, that he'd had enough of risking his, his life. in them. we don't know what we know is he didn't stand by Paul. He didn't remain faithful, he fell away. Now we can hope the good shepherd went after this sheep. We can hope that Demas was, was chastened and rebuked by the Lord and brought to repentance. But as it stands for Demas, this is a terrible indictment by Paul. And if the true state of Demas's heart is that he loves the world, if the true state of who he is is one who loves the world more than Christ, then Demas perished. And we just have to hope that he was a child of God and that the good shepherd left the 99 to restore him. But The warning for us is this, beware of loving the world and beware of a Christianity that says you can have the riches of Christ Jesus and you can have all that this world has to offer. Beware of somehow buying and mixing and melding the American dream with Christianity. It's done. It's done subtly and it's done unintentionally at times, but we've got to be careful. Jesus made it clear the love of this world will pull us in one direction, the love of Christ in another. The love of Christ Christ and mammon and this world are both vying for control of our hearts. They, they will not coexist peaceably. One will be increasing in strength, the other decreasing. And I'm reminded of the sober warning of 1 Corinthians 10:12. If you think, oh, this could never happen to me. Therefore, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. If Paul's coworker, who greets Christians in Scripture, who's who's stuck with him through the first imprisonment, at this late hour can apostatize, fall away, love the world more than Christ, then we need to be watching out. Because remember the emphasis in this letter about finishing the course. Demas made a good start. Demas made progress. Demas, last we hear of him, did not finish this course. So we look at Demas. Next, we look at Crescens. Titus and Luke, and and Tychicus should be in there as well. And here, we get the encouragement to be useful for the master's service. Demas serves as a warning, but Crescens, Titus, Luke, and Tychicus encourage us to be useful for the master's service. And and Paul goes through the list of where he sent them. He still has, even though he's in jail, he still can be effective in ministry because he's got his lieutenants, he's got his men, he's sending out on missions, leaving places, doing work of ministry, they are still useful to him. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me, the beloved physician. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And and turn back a little bit to chapter 2. And we're reminded of, of what Paul said previously in this letter of how to be useful. You want to be useful. You don't want to be a demis, You want to be useful for the Lord's service and sake. Paul tells us how to do that. 2 Timothy 2, 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore... If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And if you remember when we studied that a few weeks ago, we we came to the conclusion that cleansing yourself was, was keeping your doctrine pure, staying in the word. Um, That same phrase, ready for every good work, in in chapter 3, the Scripture is breathed out by God and makes a man profitable and, and ready and equipped for every good work. And so staying true to the truth, holding fast to it, steeping your mind in Scripture. You want to be useful to God? Get in this book. You want to be useful? Get in this book. God will use you. Or you can get in something else and your heart can drift like Demas. And that's the warning. Demas, who abandons Crescens, Titus, Luke, Tychicus, who the last time we see them are still being faithful. Which brings us then to Mark. And if Demas serves as a warning, and I think he does, a frightening warning, Mark should be an encouragement that gives us much hope. Because John Mark shows us that the fallen can be restored. The fallen can be restored. You may not know this, but John Mark abandoned Paul as well. He's not the only person to leave him. Demas here leaving him, but Acts 13.13 13 records that Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. And a chapter and a half later, this is the cause for a big argument between Paul and Barnabas, John Mark is Barnabas' cousin, which might explain why Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance. But in Acts 15, 36, we read this. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So John Mark previously had wimped out, he had pulled back, he had not gone on with Paul to the work. He was part of Paul's team. And we don't know if he left Paul because he loved the world, but for whatever reason, it wasn't good. Paul thought it disqualified him from missionary service. Paul didn't want to take him. Paul thought that so strongly, he was willing to separate from Barnabas so as not to co-labor with John Mark. And yet, by the time Paul writes Colossians, Colossians 4.10, listen to this. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Isn't that good news? I mean, Demas serves as a warning. I mean, you can be near the end of your course and you can still crash. John Bunyan, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, famously, just as you approach the river that separates you to the celestial city, there is an entrance to hell. It's not accidentally put there by Bunyan. The point he's making is we've got to be on our guard. We've got to persevere. We've got to finish the course. But here is somebody who stumbled and fell, and for a time, at least in Paul's view, was disqualified from ministry. And yet, as early as Paul's first imprisonment, he's restored. We can only, we can only guess at his repentance, at his restoration when it took place. But the point is that I want to get us to this. You can screw up bad you can stumble and fall. You can bring shame to the Lord. You can disqualify yourself from ministry, ministry. And yet, through faith and repentance, you can be restored. You can be restored. And here, the end of Paul's life, the final word on John Mark is not the one who shrunk back, the one who didn't go to the work, but rather, I mean, this is just wonderful. Bring, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is Very useful to me for ministry, very useful. Isn't that good news? Demas is a warning, and don't, don't, don't presume that you've got it all together. Watch out, be faithful, persevere. John Mark, but if you stumble, if you fall, if you screw up royally, you can be restored. To Turn back again to chapter two of 2 Timothy. Both, both the warning of Demas and the encouragement of John Mark are in that final Faithful saying of chapter two, verse eleven. Remember, there are five trustworthy sayings, early Christian hymns or doctrinal statements, and this one in four couplets. I mean, we looked at a few a month or so ago. If we have died with him, verse eleven, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he. Also, will deny us. And so, the last we see of Demas, we fear that may be in store for him. We don't know the end of his life. We don't know if he was restored and brought to repentance, but we are afraid for Demas. But then, the final couplet if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. For someone like John Mark, that means that if you shrink back and if you set out to do a task and you are a coward and you pull back and, and you, you disqualify yourself, Jesus remains faithful. The gospel is still on the table. As long as you are drawing breath, there is a chance to turn, to be restored, to be forgiven. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, one of my favorite passages. Listen to this about our great Savior and high priest Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Then he'll use a double negative, which can be a little confusing, but stick with it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. So we don't have an unsympathizing priest, which is a complicated way of saying we do have a priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I want you to notice something with that passage. When, according to Hebrews 3, 4, 14 to 16, when are we most invited to come before the throne of grace? When we need mercy, when we need help, this is something that I can struggle with because all of us want to believe inwardly we stand and fall before God on our own conducts and our own works. We want to believe that. It's a lie. We want to believe that. Tell me, tell me if you've ever done this. We'll, we'll do a little test to see if we sometimes believe that. You've had a good day. You've read your Bible. You've been in the Word. You shared your faith to the checkout worker at the supermarket. You come home and you boldly go before God in prayer. Then you have a bad day and you, you lose your temper driving to work and you didn't have time for quiet time this morning. And, you know, you, you were a little embarrassed about your Christian testimony throughout the day and you come home and you don't even want to pray. You don't feel you can go before God. You feel like you've been bad. You, you feel like the dog who's sort of hiding in the corner. If, if you've ever done that, then you intuitively believe your standing before God is based on what you do. And we're starting to act that way. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, let us draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that may receive mercy and find help in time of need. May I submit to you that even if there are times where you're more righteous and less righteous, you need grace and help more when you've had a bad day. Right? So I... I just find so much encouragement from this example of John Mark. And, and maybe some are here today who've who started good, started well once years ago, and maybe you lost sight of that. Maybe you, you, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world have choked your first love. Maybe you, you, you fell away. Maybe you feel like the Lord can't use you anymore, like you're damaged goods. I want to encourage you to come before the throne of grace. You need it. You're invited. You can be restored. John Mark can be restored. If Demas lives long enough to return, he can be restored. You just don't know. You can be restored. there's, There's room at the table, and the gospel is open to you. The gospel says to all, come freely, without cost. The Lord will give you water, living water, Turn to Christ. There's no one so far gone. There's no one who's, who's made a wreck of their faith that cannot, through repentance and faith, be restored. You can become useful again to the Lord. You can. John Mark is, is a wonderful example for that. Fourth, I just want to look in this section at Paul himself. Um, at Paul himself. Now, Paul has already said that he has finished the race, verse 7. He's finished the race. Race is done. I don't know about you, but if I run a race, and I'd be hard-pressed to be made to run a race, but if I did run a race, and if it were over, what would you be doing when you finished a race? I'd probably be like prostrate on the floor, like hyperventilating, most likely. Um, I might be sitting in a chair. I might be drinking a drink. What I probably wouldn't be doing after I finished a race is out there still running. that is exactly what Paul is doing. Isn't it striking? I've finished the race. Bring the parchments and the scrolls. (laughs) Paul is amazing. And from this we learn there is always work to be done. There's always work to be done. The Apostle Paul in one breath can say, I've finished the course. Done. Hey, make sure you bring the books and especially the parchments. I mean, he's writing this letter as an act of ministry. Now, we don't know, and you'd be amazed how many pages commentators spend trying to guess at what the parchments and the scrolls are. We don't know. They're clearly useful to Paul, whether they're scripture or writings of other Christians. We don't know. What we know is Paul isn't going to sit back and just take it easy for these last months or two. He's going to get work done. He's going to get to know God better in his word. He's going to study. He's probably going to write. He's not out in the golf course, you know, spending the last five years of his life, you know, trying to get down to par before he sees the Lord. Hobbies are good. Recreation's good in its place. but The Lord made us to work. That doesn't mean that Every time you work, you have to get paid for it. We can shift into different types of work, but we were not made for idleness. Paul understands that. He's in prison, and he's going to be productive until the last day. We want to be found hard. I trust we want to be found hard at work when the Lord calls us to him or when he returns. We want to be that good and faithful servant who isn't drunk, lying, and lounging around in Jesus' parable. We want to be found at work. And the Apostle Paul, he's finished the course. He's still working It's just amazing, amazing. Now we're going to take a look at the foes. So we've looked at the friends, the friend who fell, the friends who were being faithful, the restored friend. Now we're going to look at his foes. We'll look at Alexander the coppersmith. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to all his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, it is likely that Alexander the coppersmith is the same Alexander referenced in 1 Timothy 1.20 where Paul, speaking of former brothers who've been put under church discipline, he says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I've handed over to Satan, they may learn not to blaspheme. These are people who were saying the resurrection of the dead had passed. It's likely, you wonder why he adds in the coppersmith here it's probably the same guy, who might also be the same Alexander in Acts 19.33. We're just not sure. But rather than getting hung up on who this Alexander is, the point is clear. He opposed Paul, and he wants Timothy to be aware of and to expect opposition. He wants Timothy to be aware of and to expect opposition, And, of course, this just goes to the territory of the letter where Paul has said, look, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Share in suffering, Timothy. But just because you're willing to share in suffering doesn't mean you're a fool. There's a wisdom in being aware of the lay of the land. Paul wants to give him a heads up about this dangerous enemy, and he wants him to be aware of him. In fact, it's quite possible that Alexander was part of the reason why Paul was arrested, literally what says there is Alexander the Coffersmith did me great harm. He showed or demonstrated, which in some extra-biblical literature is the language of a witness giving testimony. So it's possible that this is one of the people who accused Paul who caused him to be arrested. We don't know. He did him great harm. And Paul is stinging over that. And, and he wants Timothy in coming to visit him in Rome. He, he may try to do harm to Timothy, So on the one hand, don't be surprised. Expect opposition. On the other hand, be aware of it. I think with the implication of, you know, don't let him sideswipe you. Don't let him catch you unawares. Elsewhere, Paul says, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. And so there's a tension between, on the one hand, we want to be wise. We don't want to walk into trouble unnecessarily. On the other hand, our highest value isn't avoid pain and suffering at all costs. There's this this middle um, sort of, place of wisdom on the one hand we recognize it may be necessary to suffer it may well be appropriate and god may call us to suffer and yet we're not masochists just just beat me up please be aware of alexander he says be aware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message Expect opposition. Don't be surprised by it. Sometimes when I talk to Christians and they hear about new legislation and the way things are going in the world, you get the impression this is a surprise. I'm not at all surprised. What surprises me is the periods of of blessing and prosperity and peace. I'm not surprised when Canaanites act like Canaanites. Um, I'm blessed and surprised when the Lord gives us uh, room to breathe. So I don't enjoy um, when I see evil gaining strength, but i Sadly, I'm not surprised by it. In John 15, 19, Jesus tells the disciples plainly, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There it is. We are taken out of the world, placed into the kingdom of the Son. There is going to be an inherent natural Base level hostility between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And we should expect opposition. The other thing I want to notice is this trust in the Lord's judgment. Trust in the Lord's judgment. Paul is clearly hurt and clearly more than a little, you know, bothered by the harm Alexander did. And it can be tough sometimes figuring out how does the Bible want us to deal with insult and being mistreated. And the Bible doesn't say, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There is a very real sense in which we can grieve. We can cry out when wrong is done to us. We can, we can this is not right. What matters is we don't take vengeance into our own hands, but we trust the Lord will deal with it. Paul's hope here, the way he deals with this great harm done him, is not by saying, well, it's nothing. I deserve it. Or, and he's not saying, well, it's okay. Heaven will make up for it. His response is, there's a righteous judge who will who will give a recompense to this man. This is the same instructions Paul gives earlier in, in Romans twelve nineteen to twenty. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Or make room or get out of the way for God's wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It, it, you can be right in being righteously angry at sin being done to you or others. You can, you can be like the saints in Revelation who cry out from under the throne, oh Lord, how long until you vindicate our blood? You can have a desire to see justice done. What you can't do is want to do it yourself. Jesus himself in, in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was insulted, he uttered no threats, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was mistreated, he didn't say, I deserve it. He didn't say, It's okay. Jesus wants vindication. He's just willing to trust God's timetable. He's just willing to trust his Father to make things right. And we need to fall in line with Jesus, fall in line with Paul. And when we are wronged, it is right. There's something right about crying out in anguish. Read the Psalms. They do. The the biblical answer for Christians isn't, well, it's okay. No, the Bible can authenticate and validate our anguish. And then we give it to God, and we trust him to make things right. Trust in the Lord's judgment. Paul isn't going isn't to be a vigilante. He's not going to do anything. Oh, yes, Alexander the coppersmith did much harm. He opposed the gospel. He's getting in the way. He's an enemy of the cross. The Lord will fix his wagon. The Lord will deal with him. So Paul can say, I don't have to. But be aware of him, Timothy. Timothy not only do we have Alexander the Pauper Smith, we also have the fact that Paul was abandoned by everyone. There's a little bit of over-exaggeration here. We know that Luke's still with him. But yet, it's got to be disheartening for Paul. He has his first trial date. When he says his first defense, just like here in America, when you're on your own capital charges, you may have your case seen more than once. Paul had appealed to Caesar. He's in Rome, and he has his first... Defense, quite possibly in front of Nero himself. That'd be, according to the time period, the right Roman emperor. And hopeful that maybe a coalition of Christians would come in support, standing with him in solidarity. He comes to his first hearing. And at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul's not bitter about it. He knows they're weak. He knows it was hard. And yet you've, you've just got to imagine the suffering of this man. I mean, this whole last section is about Paul and people, and you're going to have this list of people. Greet so-and-so. Greet so-and-so. Oh, he cares about people. You, you might be tempted to think that Paul is just like an analytical sort of doctrine robot. He's not. And a man who loves this hard can be hurt this much, abandoned. And then we get this wonderful, wonderful statement about Jesus Christ. And and this is something I was talking to a friend yesterday about. Even in suffering, we've got to bring in the other half of the story. Paul could have just stopped there. They all deserted me. But Paul can't stop there because he's not an atheist. The Lord stood by me. That's not the whole story. Yes, they all deserted me. Yes, that hurt and stung. Let me tell you about my Savior, Jesus. He stood by me, and he strengthened me. And so the blank here, Christ will never, never forsake you. People will. People will. People who've sworn not to. Husbands will sadly forsake wives. Wives will sadly forsake husbands. Children can turn on parents. Dear friends can betray us. We hope they won't. We pray and trust they won't. They may. But understand that even if all abandon you, all leave you, all turn on you, your Savior never will. And if you look to him, you will find him to be sufficient, as Paul did. The promise of Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul, forsaken by all his friends, by all his his co-workers, but not by the Lord. Strengthened by the Lord. Able to stand. It must be a scary place. when You're in a tribunal with Nero, likely. Life and death on the line. All of your friends are too embarrassed to stand by you, and yet the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him. And, And Paul goes on to say, he strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear of it. So the second thing I want to get from this is that Christ's strength is perfected in weakness. Christ's strength is perfected in weakness. It's precisely when we look around us and we have no earthly resources, we don't feel we have the strength to go on, we don't feel we know how we can do this, and Christ shows up and gives us strength, it's precisely there that his glory is put on display. And in this context... Paul finishes his course. The message is heard by all the Gentiles. Even though, Paul, all your friends deserted you? Yes. Because my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, perfects his power in my weakness. Listen, you know about when Paul prayed to have the thorn in his side removed? Listen to the Lord's answer in 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I'll just stop there. Most of the time I'm praying the Lord will perfect his power and strength. Lord, could you make me look, could you make me really strong and powerful? Could you make me be a good speaker and a great evangelist? Could you give me victory in all areas of life? And Could you, could you do that? And then, won't I be a good advertisement for Christianity? Paul says the exact opposite. It's when broken people with nothing still managed to stand and go on and be faithful. Christ's power is perfected in weakness. Paul's, therefore, countercultural, to some degree, counter-human conclusion in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. I think that's true. When I feel confident, when I feel like I got things covered, when I feel in love myself able to handle things, you know what happens? My prayer life dries up. I don't know about you. When I feel like I can handle what's coming down the pike, my prayer life dries up. My Bible reading starts to shrink back. But when I'm fully aware, oh dear Lord, help, I can't do this. Do you know what, do you know what spikes? My prayer life, my Bible reading, my fellowship. I'm like, I need your strength, I need help. God's shown to be powerful when weak people are able to be strong, not when strong people are strong. You think of the ragtag bunch of uneducated apostles who turned the world upside down and how God's glory is perfected in their weakness. God didn't choose the debater, the scribe, or the wise of this age to carry the torch of the gospel message. He chose fishermen, tax collectors, Christ's strength is perfected in weakness. And third, Christ will bring you safely home to glory. Christ will bring you safely home to glory. He's testified to how the Lord has stood with him in and through this trial, but then in verse 18, really even the end of verse 17, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The result of his first hearing was not, feed him to the lions and animals. The Lord will rescue me from your evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You know, R.C. Sproul once said, and this resonates with me, he says, it's not death that I'm afraid of, but rather dying. And I, and I resonate with that. I'm not, I'm not scared of death. Death, I go and be with the Lord. I just hope it's one of those sort of quick, sudden, don't see it coming things. But here, Paul is saying the Lord not only stood by him, I mean, get this, not only did the Lord stand by me through the hardest, most frightening, and darkest trials of my life, he will continue to rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is the Paul who said, I'm like a drink offering being poured out. I'm being spent. The Lord stood by me, and he'll continue to deliver me, and when I die, He will not fumble what I have entrusted to him. He will not fumble me. He will bring me home. You you can count on the Lord to be faithful. He will not desert you. He will glorify himself in your weakness. He will not on your last day not show up. He will be there with you as you leave this mortal coil. He will bring you to glory. With that, Paul turns to his final farewells. he ends with a doxology here, he, he can't ascribe this much praise to God, he's talking about his Lord, so even though, ironically, even though he's in the context of talking about desertion and opposition, to him be glory, forever and ever, amen, I've just talked about Jesus, I, okay, I gotta rejoice, and then, farewells, greet Prisca and Aquila, the household of Anesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth, I left Prometheus, who was ill at Miletus, and once again, I'm just astonished by the heart Paul has for people. He's at the end of his life. He's deserted by everyone. He could just go on a long diatribe about how I can't believe this has happened to me. Why would anyone do this to me? This is so unfair. Would you, would you greet these people for me? Would you, would you greet them They're on my heart? I miss them. I want them to know that I care about them. Oh, and there's some other people who are sending greetings as well. So would you pass them along? Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Houdens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. So, the brothers who have shown up to visit Paul, they're, they're being clear. Hey, Paul, make sure when you send a letter to Timothy, let him know we said hi. And Paul doesn't say, I'm an apostle. I'm dealing with the things of God. I can't be passing on your little messages. No, it finds room here. Do not, do not, do not underestimate the importance of relationships and people and fellowship. Paul could have given us three more verses about the deity of Christ. Instead, we get greetings because they're important. Fellowship is important. If you show up here five minutes late and zip out the second it's done, you're missing out. You're missing out. Stick around, stay, have some coffee. Greetings are important. Then we get this final petition to Timothy. Do your best to come before winter because I need that cloak. And because he may not live much past that, perhaps he knows when his second hearing is gonna be. And then the final recorded words of the Apostle Paul for us in Scripture. The Lord be with your spirit, and grace be with you all. The ESV is a little footnote there, and it's you all. It's one of the reasons we know this letter isn't just for Timothy. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up for a final song, but this is, this is the Apostle Paul with his heart on his sleeve Closing words. What's on his mind? People. People are on his mind. Faithful friends and not so faithful friends. Foes. Then a long laundry list of greetings. He finished his course and he finished well. And he, he, we have profited, have we not, from studying his letter. And now we just pray that the Lord would cause us to finish our course well that if we stumble, that we would be restored and that we would take to heart and truly believe that Jesus will never forsake us, Jesus will never drop us, Jesus will glorify himself in and through our weakness. Would you please stand as we sing, Jesus, sweetest name of all.